I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Alex Segura. This is Rachel Halzel Hall. That's interesting. That is such a great question. You, you hit it exactly right there. This is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have three great authors for you today, so let's get right to it. My first guest is Michael Elias, and his new novel is called You Can Go Home Now. I really enjoyed this book. It has a very unique voice, and that's probably because Michael has lived a hell of a life. Uh, he's been an actor, a screenwriter, a playwright. He's pals with Steve Martin. That, you know, that doesn't get cooler than that. So we had a great talk about the new book and his long career at the keyboard. Michael Elias, uh, I love an author with a journey, and you have had a wild one, sir. Uh, you started out as an started as an actor, uh, and then you were a screenwriter uh, of some films that I love, uh, like The Frisco Kid, uh, Young Doctors in Love, and and The Jerk, and, and now novels. So I want to know, going way back to the beginning. When did you discover that you were a writer among all these other talents that you had? I think I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how to do it. After college, I decided I wanted to be an actor. I moved to New York. I acted, then went into improvisational comedy. And I was a comedian with a partner for a few years, which is how I got to Hollywood. Uh, We were on a Johnny Carson show and a producer called and asked who wrote our material. And we said, we do. <laughs> and he said, would you like to come to Hollywood and be writers? Which is how I, I came to Hollywood. All the time, writing for TV and trying to write screenplays, and but always privately, or I don't want to say secretly, but privately writing my own, my own stuff that no one could fix, uh, change, or fire me from. Uh-huh. Because as you know, you know, in, in Hollywood, you write it, they own it, and they can do whatever they want. Exactly. Uh, and I made that deal. That was okay. And, and actually, uh, writing television and producing and writing television, which is really a writer's medium, because yeah. you, have, you have the contr- really have the control, where in film, you argue with the director, your ass is out in the, on the street, for sure. <laughs> But along the way, I think there was a friendly divorce from television, and I started a novel, again, when no one could tell me what to do. And, uh, and then I found that the thing I enjoyed the most. It's this irony that all the time I was writing for a living, but the author thing came later. Uh-huh. You're absolutely right. There's, there's this strange thing that happens with a novel where there is still that sort of level of, I don't know if it's respect or or what, of the written word in a novel where people are less likely to change it to to the extent that they are with a, a script. Yeah. I mean, they could either say yes, they say yes or no. Yeah. And I, on, on both of these uh, novels that I, I published, the uh, the one about Peru and, the, and, and this one, uh, you can go home now. I work with great editors. And the last one that was Sarah Nelson at uh, Harper Collins. She was great. And she's and always saying, hey, it's yours. You do what you want. But I think you could, you should do this or why not try this? So but it's different from a director or a studio saying, we love your screenplay and we're firing you. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's the difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So You Can Go Home Now is uh, your second novel. Uh, both are thrillers. So with this background in comedy, how did you take the turn to writing the dark stuff? I guess it was always a part of me, but I mean, I always try to keep comedy in whatever I'm writing, but I think I was always interested in and in, in drawn to, I hate the word serious because all writing, it's all serious, but I, you know, thrillers yeah. and spy novels. I love Le Carre and I love uh, uh, historical fiction and yeah, the darker, sometimes the better. So I think maybe that was getting in, uh, in touch with a part of me that uh, was always there. And also, Writing alone, which one does when you write a novel, is different from collaborating in comedy. Yeah. And I was really lucky to have terrific collaborators when I was writing comedy. Steve Martin, uh, Rich Eustis, Carl Reiner, and, and, and my late partner, Frank Shaw. That's the way you write comedy. Uh, you know, two people. It's, it's so hard to do by yourself because you yeah. need somebody to say, eh, it's not so funny. Or can we make it <laughs> <laughs> right yeah and and also presenting it in front of an audience i mean there's the way you get feedback in comedy is whether or not they laugh right <laughs> that's right that's right and and uh and i as a comedian i got a lot of not laughs so uh <laughs> you 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 better be honest with yourself and uh it's it's not a profession or writing comedy is not it's not good if you're you know self-delusional that's for sure So when you were starting acting, uh, were you going into it sort of fancying yourself uh, the next Brando? And, and by contrast, when you turn to writing thrillers, are, are you emulating any heroes of yours? Okay, for the first question, no, I wasn't Brando. Uh, <laughs> I was a, a balding 23-year-old, and there weren't a lot of parts for me. But I got into uh, the Living Theater. They were a, a kind of a radical theater collective in New York, uh, famous for The Connection and The Brig, which I did for a couple of years. And then I did all the, a lot of the off-Broadway, off uh, La Mama, Judson. But I guess there was a part of me who always wanted to be a movie star, but I was just not. I was a young character actor. And then that, that was pretty good for being a comedian. As for my thriller, or, or the, the most recent one, You Can Go Home Now, I think I was motivated by uh, our fascination as a culture and adoration of revenge uh, when it's yeah. done by our heroes, Clint, uh, Denzel, uh, whomever, you know, go get him, shoot the bad guy, string him up, whatever right. it is. And at the same time, we're told that's not socially acceptable. That was kind of the premise, and then I found a way to set that and then at the same time reading a lot about feminicide and uh uh women's uh the abuse of women and then i got to you know women's shelters and i guess i put it all together and my model i don't know if there are any models for that you know people say uh, uh, people say how did you think of that or where did that come from and i, I have to say i don't know it actually may be from a movie i saw when i was 12 or maybe a comic book I read when I was nine. We just absorb everything. And I believe that creativity is more a function of memory. Hmm. I have the advantage, I suppose, of just having seen so much 
and and life experiences. So you 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 you, t- you pluck it out of your memory, even though you don't know it's your memory. You think you made yeah. something up, but you really didn't. That, which is, by the way, an argument for or against this notion in Hollywood of ageism, because I actually have more memory uh, of solutions to literary problems uh, than somebody half a third of my age. True. (laughs) (laughs) Nina Karim is the heroine of this novel, and this is a far cry from a write-what-you-know scenario for you, Michael. So (laughs) are you the the kind of writer who likes to, to challenge yourself when you're creating characters? I, I hope so. But at the same time, there's a lot of her or there's a lot of me in her. Hmm. We feel the same way about food. We feel the same way about assholes. We feel the same way about <laughs> people we, we admire. We've watched a lot of the same movies, television shows. And I would say all of those characters are uh, as, as, as different as they are from who I am have some part of them it comes from me and and I guess that's a challenge because it makes me want to reach into myself you must have a great temptation i mean like you were saying you you have this this long memory and have had so many of these experiences it must be tempting to just draw something that is maybe more consciously directly from your life. But I, I think if, if what you're saying, I think this does go in line with what you were saying earlier, like Nina perhaps is a, a bit of a composite of these other experiences that you've you've had, but that creative writer's brain is able to almost make an impressionist view of you as this much older you know, white man and then putting it in the body of a single 31-year-old female. Yeah, I mean, I, I, of course that that was that was a challenge. And uh, when I started writing it in the first person, I said, "What am I doing?" Uh, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, and and I, I always, all the way along the way, I showed it to women uh, and said, "Take your hardest shot," and they did. I got my ass kicked a lot, and the the only, the end result is only did I get it right. Nina's past uh, is mine in a lot of ways because we're both from uh, small towns in upstate New York. Our fathers were doctors. Uh, uh, mine wasn't shot by a, a, a pro-life fanatic, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I took everything I could from as much as my life, which comes in handy. Now, I will tell you that my, I wrote another novel, which has to wait for a while, which is about me. It's about a Hollywood writer, and it's it's basically all my stories that I fictionalized so I could tell the truth. Yeah, do, do the, do the say the things you always wanted to say in the moment. That kind of thing. yeah, yeah. Get even or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so, we're we're back to the theme of revenge now. That's right, revenge. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, we all grew up on it, didn't we? <laughs> we did. Well, and Hollywood runs on it. Yeah. Well, and now you split time uh, between Los Angeles and Paris. Do you like to change up locales? Is that a way to kind of kickstart the creativity to 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 switch things up like that? No, I went, I went to Paris because my wife uh, got a job there, and uh, she took me uh, with her, which was really nice. And uh, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> no, it was great. She had a she had a job uh, running. Uh, her name is Bianca Roberts, and she ran a cultural institution called the Mona Bismarck American Center, 
and she was in charge of that. And I wrote on the, on the, in the, in the kitchen table in this uh, nice little apartment. And I love Paris and in no way did it ever inspire me. Uh, I would go and stand in outside of Gertrude Stein's house. It was nearby on the street and nothing happened. Um, <laughs> I would walk Hemingway walked and nothing happened. It just had to go back to the living room where I mean the dining room and that's where it happened. If there was any inspiration, it was that I was basically left alone uh, all day. I loved the city and I, I made friends and I loved walking around and it was great to live there, but it didn't really affect my my writing, I would say. Well, you, you, so you're dispelling the, the romantic notion that uh, writers can go to a, a place like that and, as you say, just, just walk the streets and the ideas will come flooding in. But no, I, the work happens when you're sitting there at that kitchen table. Yeah. It's true what you say, though. You, you, in a sense, you're writing all the time. But I never heard Gene Kelly music, you know, <laughs> to inspire me to write. You know, then there, there are guys like, I mean, uh, what's uh, who did the Twilight Zone? Rod Serling. He could write a script in a half hour. But what he was doing is he wasn't writing it. What he did is he wrote in his head, maybe for days. Yeah. And the act of writing for him was just sort of putting it down on paper. It was already written in his head. But there is that thing, as you say, when you finally you uh, you sit down at the desk and you face the computer or, or your yellow legal pad, whatever it is, you're all alone. That's it. Places I didn't love to write is where I would go away and say, okay, I'll go somewhere and write. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll go to, a, you know, I'll rent a room at a motel on a beach and I'll write. That was the worst. I, I like that. That's uh, that's uh, again. I think that's good advice for people. Is that uh, if if you go seeking the inspiration, uh, if you're, you're looking for it in the wrong place. The, the only place to find it is uh, butt in the seat and fingers on the keys. Yeah, I think I would be horrible. Life would at a writer's colony. Uh, oh yeah, where they say you know we 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 deliver your lunch on a tray outside your door, and I mean, oh my god, I can't think of anything worse. Uh, <laughs> like I'm locked in this cabin, and I have to write. Uh, uh, no, I want to go to I want to go to the hardware store, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, jumping right into my next guest. Jennifer Chow is the author of Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, the start of a new cozy mystery series in which Mimi Lee, who is a pet groomer, she gets some help from a very special sidekick, a talking cat named Marshmallow. Now, that I had to find out more about. Well, Jennifer Chow, welcome to the show. So you've written uh, three books in your Winston Wong series, plus some standalones. Now, is it a little bit nerve-wracking to debut a new character that you would hope would be a long-running series? Yeah, it's always you know a jump to build a whole new world and try to have our readers come along for the ride. I think it's always a risk. Is it almost like being a debut author all over again? <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. I mean, I had a lot of fun writing especially the, the cat, the sassy cat that's in the story. I think, you know, he's a hoot, but I'm, I'm hoping that that will also resonate with readers as well. I mean, it is a, my debut with a big five publisher. So in that way, it's all brand new to me. Oh, so you're, you're, you're hitting the reset button. Now, and, and you did, uh, you went 
I guess with your your full real name rather than a JJ Chow, which you had been using for a while. So yeah, it's 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 a a little bit of a restart. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think part of it is just to have that transparency that I'm a female writer, and I, the protagonist Mimi Lee, you know, is also a young woman. So I think going with my full name uh, was probably a better idea than going with initials. In choosing the initials, were were you trying to hide a little bit? And and because I know I've I've talked to some male authors who do initials, sort of for the same reason, like you don't want to be put into a box. Right. Actually, I I did think about that. Uh, part of it was to sort of um, hide a little bit, like you were saying, because the protagonist in that series, Winston Wong, is a male ex video game tester. So I didn't want readers to be put off by a female author writing that series um, and I think actually part of it was because that series I self-published and so it was a little bit of um, an experiment in, in figuring out kind of what readers uh, were in that indie scene. Oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but these uh, these books are subtitled "The Sassy Cat Mysteries," uh, and in Mimi gets a clue. Uh, Mimi gets help from quite the unusual partner, right? <laughs> yes, the talking sassy cat, Marshmallow. Yeah, <laughs> he he was a lot of fun to write, and just uh, I think channeling that inner sassiness and kind of being able to get away with anything I wanted to say because hey, he's a he's a talking cat. Now, are are you a cat owner yourself? Uh, I'm I'm not, and it's a little bit of a um, hot topic in our household uh, because my husband's actually allergic to cats, so oh. yeah, he's kind of got a point up on me. <laughs> well, I think anyone who who has owned cats in the past would would definitely relate to Marshmallow's voice, the, the sassiness you speak of. You so like, oh yeah, no, if my cat could talk, that's probably exactly what they would sound like. Just especially all the, like the, I think the, uh, the physical things that cats do um, and then being able to channel that inner attitude. <laughs> Although I don't, you know, I don't know if I was going to have someone help me solve a murder. I don't know if a cat, sometimes cats can come off as a little bit indifferent. Are they really the best partner in uh, investigating a crime? <laughs> Well, yeah, it took a little bit for uh, Marshmallow to get, you know, involved. He's like, eh, we'll see. I don't know what this has to do with me. But um, so it took a little bit of coaxing from Mimi to, to get him on board. But, you know, cats are, you know, pretty stealthy and very highly underestimated. That made for a good partnering situation. That's true. And famously curious. <laughs> I, I do look at the cats and I'm like, wow, you know, I don't. You're balancing on this chair. Like, what are you really thinking? <laughs> thinking about murder. <laughs> yeah. Solving murders. That's oh, right. that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've known some cats that I think that they're thinking about committing the murders. Well, that would be true, too. That would be, they'd be hard to catch. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have one of the greatest stories of how this series came about because an editor at your Big Five publisher, they approached you. Now that never happens, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it caught me out of blue too. First, I was like, "Wait, is this one of those hoaxes?" Right? <laughs> so I had, like fished for my information, Google the person, and asked a couple of writer friends around, like, "Is this a legit, legit email that I'm getting from this person?" 
But yeah, I guess they read my self-published work and they're like, hey, we're actually looking for a cozy mystery series with a female Asian American lead. Well, that's excellent. I mean, it's that it's kind of hard for you now to to give advice to young up and coming writers who who are always eager to get advice from people who've who've broken through. And it, but your advice is just going to be like, well, sit around and the phone will ring; it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, don't worry. The editor will contact you. No, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't plan for these kind of things, right? So I was just going to plot away, and you know. Just keep on writing what I wanted to write. I mean, you've written, like I said, the Winston Wong series was also definitely on on the cozy side. But then you also have uh, some young adult fantasy, and you have an adult novel. I mean, but has have in the mystery world has cozy always been your wheelhouse? Is that what you like to read as well? I I do well. I I mean, I started off, you know, with the usual. Um, like Nancy Drew books, Encyclopedia Brown as a kid. Uh, and then my mom and I actually read a lot of Agatha Christie together. So I think that really sparked my interest. And actually, to be honest, I wasn't sure that I could write mysteries. When I first published the first book in the the Winston Wong cozy series, I thought, well, you know, I'm just, I'm going to do it because I like the mysteries. But I don't know if I could actually write a mystery i can read one but i wasn't sure if i could write one but then it was so much fun that i continued so your books really embrace your cultural heritage as a chinese american i when you, when you were reading these books with your mom were you seeing any or or very much representation of your own uh, family and, and your own culture in, in these books that, that got you interested in writing mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, i i didn't and the only reason i stumbled onto um any kind of asian american mystery was because of my library they had uh-huh. uh-huh, at the time it was um you know, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And so they had this rack of books. And I happened um, to find the Dale Furtani series. And so uh, the ones I read were, well, most of them, but the samurai ones, especially, just to have that Asian representation. I mean, it wasn't even Chinese American, right? It was Japanese American. But even knowing that they're was an Asian author, I think was eye-opening to me. And I'm grateful that I am able now to put a little bit of um, culture into my books. My daughters uh, were both born in China and I always like to get any question ideas that they might have. Uh, So I asked them, hey, is there anything that you would like me to ask Jennifer? And uh, my older daughter, my 14 year old, Molly, uh, she came out of the gates uh, w- with kind of a heavy question. So I'm going to throw this at you from my, my daughter, Molly. But she, she's been increasingly interested in, in writing and starting to do her own stories. And she sees me typing away at it. I, she doesn't see me making any money at it. So I don't know why she thinks this is a good idea. But, uh, but she was wondering, you know, as an Asian American, have you encountered any trouble along the way or any, any sort of marginalization within writing? Because... You know, she she's always aware of the lack of Asian American actors on you know shows that she watches and stuff like that. So, did you encounter uh, any resistance to uh, having you know an Asian American protagonist? I don't know if I did outright. 
uh, I know that I had, when I was first doing the Winston series, I had thought about doing some, I sent out a few queries. I did have someone ask me if I could change from male to female for the character, but I'm not sure if that was just marketing purposes or if it had anything to do with diversity. What I would say is I, I have had friends who've had experiences where um, they felt restricted, I guess, in certain ways. Like I have a friend who, who wrote a book and it was optioned, but they basically had told my friend that it was unlikely that they would be able to, to make something because they weren't sure if they could pull in Asian actors or actresses that would kind of bring uh, the fan base that they wanted. Well, but now I have this great story that I can tell my daughter, say, well, just keep writing and eventually they'll call you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and you still won't make money at it. <laughs> <laughs> but the trick is you got to actually keep, keep on writing. You got to keep doing what you do, right? I mean, if it's in there, you know, if you're inspired to create, then you can't really stop it. Well, uh, and Mimi is back later this year. She's she's coming right out of the gate. You have two books in one year. That's crazy. Yeah, it's like I don't know. Lockdown releases. <laughs> All right. Well, Jennifer, uh, we we look forward to more of uh, Mimi and Marshmallow's adventures, uh, and I think you're tapped into a wide market with people who are probably sitting at home staring at their cats and have always wanted them to be able to open their mouths and start talking to them. I think you, you, you really nailed it on this one. Well, thanks. I, I hope so. And I've actually had somebody say, yeah, you know, I think I'll read your book to my pet. <laughs> so <laughs> two for one. <laughs> Last up this time is Richard Prosh. Richard is the author of the Dan Spaulding series, and the first six books of that series are collected in a two-volume set that's out now, and the seventh in the series was recently released. Richard also writes westerns and co-hosts his own podcast, so we had a lot to talk about. Richard, your Dan Spaulding novels have been collected now in two volumes. That's six novels I'm holding in my hand right now, just in one hand. This is uh, quite convenient. Uh, so let's talk about Dan. Uh, he's an ex-cop who now runs a vintage record store. Uh, and before we even get to the plots, you've tapped into a, a fantasy retirement job for me. Is this a little bit of a fantasy for you too? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you are yourself an avid vinyl collector, right? Yeah, I am. Uh, you know, I was in when I was in high school. We had an open campus on our uh, on our at our school, and uh, for lunch, the other guys would go to the cafeteria or go to the downtown to the local cafe or whatever. I would go to a house that was nearby where an older guy lived. You know, he was kind of the old hippie. He would live in his uh, bedroom, and I would go in there and uh, spend all the entire noon hour just uh, looking at, through his record collection. He'd and he would just, he was really cool. You know, he's always smoking a cigarette and he'd be like, uh, yeah, Prasher, if you want to borrow that Zappa record, you just go ahead. You know, I, I could borrow all <laughs> these records from him and, and uh, it really, really was an education right there in itself. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Everyone needs someone like that in their life. Absolutely. So Dan Spaulding, uh, like I said, ex-cop, and uh, as so often happens, I feel like with uh, guys who try to get out of that life, uh, he can't really quite escape the trouble and mayhem, can he? Yeah, and that that happens, I think, to all of us when we switch careers, you know, we see what's still going on in the industry we left, and yeah, we want to get back in, something tries to pull us back in, you know, it's like... uh, uh, Mike, Michael Corleone, you know, they keep trying to pull me back in. And right. I, think, I think that's what's happening to Dan in, in the books. Trouble seems to follow him. Well, see, that's the thing is like for a guy like this, is trouble following him or is he sort of unconsciously seeking out the trouble himself? Yeah, yeah, a little of both, I, I think. I think Dan is, <laughs> uh, he's got his fantasy job. But again, like so many of us in, in a retirement situation, you know, it, there's just that itch to, to get back to something. Uh, maybe there's something that drove him originally to do that. And it's still in there, even though he wants to deny it and maybe live his fantasy life. Now, these books also take place in the Ozarks uh, near where you currently live. Do you prefer a rural story versus a, a big city kind of mystery? I do. You know, in uh, with my other hat, I'm a Western writer and I grew up in Nebraska. So I grew up outside. I spent most of, most of my days outside doing things and uh, working. I just, I, I relate to that. You know, I relate to the dangers and the pitfalls of being outside. You know, nature isn't always your friend. And uh, especially if you get some uh, bad actors involved that uh, wish to uh, do you harm, then uh, they can use that against you sometimes. And so I've always liked that rural noir thing. And, and uh, I'm just more familiar with that probably than a, than a, a down and gritty urban environment. Yeah. And it seems like sometimes when you're out there a little bit in the country, away from the density of a big city, people at least think they can get away with more in terms of criminality, I guess. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It is. And uh, I can remember growing up in Nebraska, uh, we would used used to have parties on dirt roads. You know, that's what you did at night in high school uh, for a Friday night or Saturday night. You would go out on a dirt road and there'd be a road party. And then there was always like, well, what's going on over on that road? And people say, well, maybe we don't want to know, you know, there's always (laughs) something going on on some dirt road somewhere because they're, you know, the nearest law enforcement was 30 minutes away. (laughs) Well, enter Dan Spaulding to crack some skulls and give them what for. (laughs) But now these books are definitely not all good guys win and Dan uh, does not always work within the law, let's say. <laughs> Do you think uh, is an anti-hero just a hell of a lot more fun to write? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, I think that's why I, I didn't want Dan to be a, a police officer uh, still on the job because, you know, I don't, I don't want him to be a guy that's going to get in trouble for what he, he does or what he might, uh, might do to solve something. Um, and I don't think he goes, you know, too far ever. But uh, yeah, sometimes he might skirt the law a little bit. And I didn't want to have to get into the legal technicalities of all that. Well, now you mentioned you also write Westerns. And, uh, you know, that's how you and I first met is uh, working on a a Western series. And I've I've always felt there is a lot more crossover between Westerns and crime fiction than most people give it credit for. I've, I've always tried to put some Westerns in people's hands and say, look, if you like a good thriller. If you like, uh, you know, a, a good action novel, you're going to like this. It might take place on horseback, but trust me, you're going to like it. I mean, it, there, there's a ton of crossover, right? You're right. Absolutely. 
you know, um, the, the late Bill Kreider was a great example of that he wrote such yeah. great crime novels, but, uh, you know, cut his teeth on Westerns and, and loved the Western genre and wrote great Westerns too. Well, so how do you think, uh, Dan Spaulding would do in the old West? Well, I, I think Dan would, would, he'd probably do all right, but so much of what makes up Dan is, is, a, from the contemporary setting, you know, the, the vinyl records and the music, um, he, he, is obsessed with the music, though I try not to overpower the reader with a lot of that. I don't, you know, I don't want to do an info dump of, of you know, what I know about the Grateful Dead. So here I'm going to, you know, give you three pages on that. <laughs> but I do try to stick that in there a little bit to show that Dan, uh, he thinks about music. He doesn't just listen to uh, the latest Miles Davis record, but he thinks about uh, where Marcus Miller was with Miles Davis. He thinks about stuff like that the same way that Spencer in the Robert B. Parker novels might think about baseball. So mm. that's a contemporary thing that, that Dan is into. And then, of course, he has his motorcycle and he's into martial arts. And so there's a lot of contemporary stuff. Dan in the Old West, I would probably have to rethink some of what, what, what would Dan, you know, what would make up Dan in the Old West. The central character is the same, but what would the trappings be? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, if first things first, you got to decide, is, is he wearing a white hat or a black hat? Right. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> And in the old west, he might be wearing a black hat. I, it, it sounds it sounds like maybe he traded in his his white hat, and then uh, but when when things get tough, he's you know kind of like uh, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. He's he's going to reach, he's going to pull out that black hat, put it on again. And <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. These are, as I said, six novels collected in two volumes. Which uh, you know, it's great because whenever anyone's digging into a, a new series. I, I'm always loath to start in the middle. I always I want to start a series from the beginning, and uh, I, I want to know. Like speaking of things like the Spencer series, uh, you know, if are are you that way too? Like if you find a series that's maybe even ten, twelve books in, are you the kind of guy who's going to go back to the beginning and, and get the whole thing? Are you are you able to jump in the, to the deep end with any old book? Oh, I'm I'm like you, Eric. I I have to go back to the beginning and start. I, even if even if I read a review and you know the reviewer says the first couple books stink or or something, I have to <laughs> I have to plow through them. I have to read them. And um, you know, a, an example of that is C.J. Box. Um, man, mm. I I had to go back and I don't even know how many books were out at the time that I started reading those, but I had to go back and start way from the beginning. And the first couple books weren't as good, I don't think. Uh, but I had to, I had to read them and know what what had gone before. Yeah. So speaking of podcasts, since we're on one, uh, you also co-host a podcast about Western fiction, Six Gun Justice, that you co-host with our friend Paul Bishop. Uh, and you guys really dig deep into the genre on that show. We do, uh, you know, uh, and I think I think the struggle there that Paul and I both share is we want to get the information out. Uh, there's so much really good information about westerns that are it's available everywhere in in uh, uh, reference books and on the web so much good stuff that we gather together and we want to share but we don't want to just make it this boring info dump so i think we do work hard to try to bring that information to our listeners in a uh, an enjoyable way yeah no it's like listening to uh, you know a fun conversation with the kind of guys who, who really know their stuff i i know i always like to get together with people like that and whether it's music or whether it's books or films or whatever, if you're, if you can sit there and learn a lot just by sitting and listening and being quiet for a while, those are, 
those are my favorite conversations where I don't have to say a word. Right. That's exactly right. You know, that's why I, we haven't been able to do it this year, obviously with everything that's gone on, but I miss the conventions. And back when I worked in the comic book industry, we would go to conventions and I, I just miss being quiet in a corner somewhere, you know, go to a party yeah. and just have one drink, sit in the corner and just listen. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Paul is uh, himself a former career police officer. Now, I know I've uh, hit him up with a couple of questions, and I've asked his advice uh, on occasion. Have you uh, ever gotten his take on uh, what he thinks of Dan Spaulding? Does he see someone like that who uh, you know, might be a glimpse into Paul's future? I mean, Paul's retired now, but uh, how, what would it take to get him back in the saddle? <laughs> we need to, yeah, we need to ask him if he would, if he would uh, take on some of these cases for Dan. Um, but, but yes, Paul is a, a great friend. And uh, just a wellspring of knowledge and just a really level-headed guy that I can take something to and bounce off him and say, you know, would this really happen in real life? And he can say, well, you know, no, that's that's a little far-fetched or something. So um, just a great friend and a, a, a great guy to, to tap into sometimes. And at the end of the day, are you always going to make the choice of what's realistic and, and what would really happen or how free are you with your artistic license if it serves the story and uh, pushes the accelerator on the plot a little bit? Yeah, that's always the tough question because um, there's always, I think for me, it's always a case of um, that with violence. If I'm writing the violence, if I'm writing about a guy gets shot in real life, he's, he's probably done, right? He's shot. But if Dan gets shot in the book, does he soldier on? Does he stand up and shrug it off? You know, uh, if he's in a fight, you, you, in real life, fights kind of, they're not really choreographed well. They end up on the street. Somebody ends up pretty busted up, but yeah. that that doesn't take the story very far either. So that's always a tough balance, I think. And I, I think I would probably, because of my background with just loving adventure fiction and loving comic books and comic book action, I, I would probably uh, eschew the realism a little bit and go for the fantasy if I had to make the choice. Well, and the readers appreciate it. <laughs> I, I hope so. I think sometimes real life might be a little bit too boring for these kinds of books. Exactly. <laughs> I think you're 100% right. <laughs> Well, excellent. Uh, thanks for joining me, Richard. Now, the, the, these Dan Spaulding collections, it's the Dan Spaulding Mystery Collection, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Like I say, three novels in each. So uh, if anyone's looking for a new series to jump in on, look at that. All in one fistful of action. Let me just add, Eric, that the uh, there's a new Dan Spaulding book out called Needle Drop, which just... Uh, dropped from Wolfpack this this past spring. So Nice. All right. Well, Dan Spalding, uh, it got a lot more uh, butts to kick out there. Thanks, Eric. Well, just like that, it's over. Another episode down. But I'll be back again next week with an all-new episode, some more great guests. Until then, you can find me on Twitter, at WriterTypes. And the archives of all the old shows can be found at WriterTypesPodcast.com. Thanks always for listening, and I'll be speaking to you next time.